Hi, and welcome to The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. Each episode includes a single, one-on-one interview with a guest who walks us through a particular event and their role in it. A battle, a firefight, a mission. It's a first-person account of combat. The episode you're about to hear is actually the first of two parts of a conversation I had with Ryan Hendrickson. It wasn't originally planned to be two separate episodes. I had asked Ryan to share two stories, and even though they're separated by six years, they really deserve to be told together. And as you listen, you'll understand why. But as we recorded, I started to realize that these stories are really important to tell, and neither should be rushed just to fit them into a single episode. So we're splitting them into two. In the next episode, you'll hear a really incredible and vivid combat story from 2016. It's a story of an event for which Ryan was actually awarded the Silver Star. But what makes that story even more compelling is that in 2010, during a deployment to Afghanistan, Ryan stepped on an IED. The explosion almost cost him his leg. Doctors thought he would lose his leg. But he fought through an intense recovery and then had to fight really just to stay in the army. That's the story you'll hear in this episode. He talks through the mission and the day he got hit. And he talks about the aftermath. These are the types of stories that are really important to tell, but understandably, they can also be really difficult to tell. So I'm personally grateful to Ryan for the opportunity to talk to him and for his willingness to share them. Before we hear from him, just a couple quick notes. First, if you're not already subscribed to The Spear, remember you can do so on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, just so you know, there are just a couple instances of swearing in this episode and some very honest but sometimes graphic descriptions of combat and the wounds that Ryan suffered. And lastly, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Alright, here's my conversation with Ryan Hendrickson. Ryan, thanks so much for uh, joining us for an episode of The Spear. I wonder if we can just kind of start off by maybe if you can give listeners a little bit of background in your, uh, especially in your military career. Wow. So you, so you, so you, you were in the, the Navy first and the Air Force and the Army. How long, how many years for each? Um, four years Navy, five years Air Force, 
Well, you're definitely the first guest we've had on the podcast that has, has been in three of three of the military services. Um, so you're a special forces soldier now. Um, did, is that what you did right away when you came into the army? Okay, so you've been in the army now for about uh, ten years. You said after nine years in 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 two other services, and we're going to talk about two stories today. Uh, one of them is the more recent one in 2016, um, an event for which you were actually awarded the Silver Star, as I understand it. Um, but I kind of want to start with uh, there's a story from 2010 that I think you're you're going to share. So can you can you kind of set lay the groundwork? I guess where like where was presumably this was on a deployment. Where was the deployment? Uh, was this your first SF deployment uh, with the army? Um, you know any other kind of relevant information? Okay, yeah. So I, I finished up the Q course, uh, straight shot all the way through. Uh, my my language scores weren't very high, so they basically put me in a group that needed soldiers because they were heading out to Afghanistan next, and that was that was special forces. Um, so I studied Spanish and everything, got assigned to 7th Group, and um, went straight over to uh, 2nd Battalion because they were in next in the shoot um, for an Afghanistan deployment. I was basically in I was basically in 7th Group for maybe seven months before we actually um, checked out on our first deployment. Um, we uh, I ended up getting sent down south. I was in a ruse gun. Um, but we would do constant um, tactical ground movements over to the Helmand province where we would um, basically uh, drive Taliban insurgents out of the Jiju Valley, which connected, uh, it was the valley that basically ran into Firebase Cobra. Um, so being on my first deployment, um, plenty, of, plenty of fighting. Uh, it, was, it was something that I really wanted. I joined the Army for that reason. Um, a lot of action in 2010 during the uh, military surge, especially in the helmet. I think uh, everybody knows about the helmet and Arugan. Um, But at the same time, I was getting my eyeballs opened up because different guys in our company and guy and third group guys and guys that I went to the Q course with all started hitting IEDs. And this was something I didn't even know about. Um, obviously, I've heard of IEDs before. Everyone has. But I didn't. I, w- I wasn't familiar with it, and so my job as an 18 Charlie, I'm the engineer on the team. Um, I I assist my Afghans, and a lot of times I clear routes myself for safe passage of uh, the ODA as we're moving into a village or a compound or you name it. Um, it was uh, September 11th. We we kicked off on our mission. Um, you know, pretty pretty good day to hit up a mission and. This is September 11th, 2010. Yes, September 11th, 2010. And how long into your into this is your first uh, SF deployment, first deployment with the army. How long? How far into the deployment was this? I was four months into this deployment. Okay. So we had been on multiple missions, uh, numerous amount of gunfights. Um, again, it was a surge, so everyone who was in Afghanistan around that time understands what I'm talking about. Um, one mission in particular was we were we were doing a company operation, so basically five ODAs to um, to push the Taliban out of the Chuchu Valley. And my 
I think some objective look we were going to be moving in from, I want to say it was east, and we would be pushing west um, through through a couple of different villages that we had had overwatch on, but there was still freedom of movement for the Taliban if they wanted to. Um, again, the mission kicked off September 11, 2010, and uh, we made our way across the Helmand River stage. Once it hit nightfall and we were ready to infill, we started moving towards our first um, set of first set of compounds and, and our first targeted village. So you said that this this is a uh, you said there are five ODAs on this mission. Is that was that something that was pretty common during this deployment? Um, because it was my first deployment, I can't tell you if it was common or not. All I know is this valley was very large, and so there wasn't five ODAs in one spot together. We were all gonna go ahead and push through the valley at different locations. Sure. Okay. Um, I grabbed him, started taking steps back. I 
must have stepped off of where he was at. Well, I, I took two steps back, and then I pulled him to the side so I can get my muzzle in the um, opening of the door of the um, entrance to the compound. And the side that I stepped to, I, I stepped on a, uh, or a crushable IED. What does that mean, a crushable IED? So a crushable is basically the initiation. So you have uh, pressure plate initiators. Um, you have a bunch of, you know, there's the, it's endless on the initiation systems that the Taliban uses. Basically, the initiation system that I stepped on was it, it was a saw blade um, initiation system. So um, there was positive wire connected to one side of the saw blade, negative wire connected to the other side of the saw blade, and basically it had a, a plastic piece over the top. Maybe it was a cut open water bottle or something. It was buried in the ground, and the minute I stepped on it, positive, negative connected, and boom. Um, yeah. So it was, yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty much what happened. It was early morning, September 12th. Were you the only one close enough to uh, have, have, have been wounded by the blast? No. Uh, Nick, he took, uh, he took shrap metal. He was, he was bloodied up, but um, the front of the uh, blast, you know, hit me. It, 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 it was actually the... I guess the amazing part, or maybe it's God watching over me part, was it was a 25-pound IED wow. broken up into three cells. Everybody knows that 25 pounds will, will make you a pink mist. You're done. Um, only one cell went off. Uh, the other two cells low order, uh, which means that the plastic caps went off, but the, it didn't um, ignite the HME. So I ate probably eight pounds of the 25. Wow. So what happens next? Um, I mean, you know, I know that, you know, you can kind of kind of describe what some of your wounds were, but did you lose consciousness? And if you did, did you do that? Did that happen right away? So, unfortunately, I did not lose consciousness. Um, I, I begged and pleaded to, to the guys to let me go to sleep, but they wouldn't. Um, they hit me with morphine, and I broke out in hives, so I figured out there that I was allergic to morphine. Huh. They gave me a fentanyl lollipop, but the amount of, like, how scared and the amount of pain I was, I chewed up the lollipop. I didn't suck on it like you're supposed to. And so my medic was basically, I don't know why he had an allergic reaction, but I can't give him more pain meds because I don't know what's going to happen to him if I do. So, yeah, I, I basically went without pain meds. Um, they had to, the helicopter couldn't land where we were at. They said it was too hot, not coming in. Taliban's all over ICOM chatter. Uh, they knew they hit me. You could hear them celebrating on the ICOM. Um, do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Wow. They're laughing and coaxing us and everything like that. Um, so basically, um, they, my team, my team picked me up and um, and started moving me back. Uh, I want to say probably 900 meters to where. Um, to where I could get picked up by a medic bag. Uh, that day in September 2010, they there were dudes getting hit left and right. So there was a resupply um, black on from the 101st that happened to be flying in our area, and they were like, "Screw it, man, we'll go pick them up." And that's you know that's basically how I got um, that's how I got out of the scene too. Um, I 
you know, out in the valley. I'd lost a lot of blood, and uh, yeah, it was it was weird because I I was conscious for for everything, and I remember like I remember I had you know my legs when when I stepped on the IED and I looked down, my leg was basically. If you're looking straight down your leg, you got your ankle and then your foot comes out and everything like that. Well, when I looked straight down my leg, my fib and my fib were poking out, but I couldn't recognize them because they were so white. It was the whitest thing I've ever seen. And then I looked over, and my boot was probably about six inches away from me. And I was like, I know I had a boot on when I came out here. Like, I know that's my boot. So I don't understand because your mind can't comprehend at the moment what's going on, but uh, right when I hit that IED, I thought I was going to suffocate to death because the amount of ammonia and dust and heat and everything else from the blast, you can't breathe, and you're trying to breathe and trying to breathe and trying to breathe, and, 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 and you can't, you can't see anything, and it's just like, it, it, it's just, it, it's the weirdest feeling in the world because you can't, you can't comprehend that that was you, so I thought, I thought Nick had hit it because the pain didn't hit me. And then I kept trying to get up, but I couldn't. And I kept trying to get up, and I couldn't. And I was calling out for Nick and everything like that. And then, you know, the dust cleared enough to where I could look down. And I was like, oh, no, this is bad. Um, What's the time scale um, when that happens? Like, at what point between the blast and that realization? Are we talking a second, five seconds, 30 seconds? Wow. I was in this, I was in this, this dust, ammonia, glass, tornado-like cloud, and it felt like it was forever before I actually realized it was me, um, because my boot was laying away from me, and I, and I didn't, you know, I was like, I know I didn't take my boot, you know, that whole rationalization, it, it, it again, I, it could have been a minute or two, I know, I know the first Americans couldn't actually get to me because there were more IEDs in the area for about three minutes. So it was three or four minutes before I actually, I had an Afghan trying to put my tourniquet on me and helping me out. But, you know, as we would crank them down because you're supposed to, um, when I told them to stop, it hurt. They stopped, you know. Well, so... The Blackhawk from the 101st, which isn't wasn't even a medevac chopper, right? It was a resupply on a resupply mission. Picks you up and takes you where? So, um, yeah, to the best of my knowledge, it was just a resupply bird. Picked me up and I was flown to uh, Terrence House, PK. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple guys that were in my company, they heard what happened and they were out there to, you know, because they were told that I was killed. Um, so they were out there to And they, they had me on a gurney, and they're trying to wheel me in. And at the 
So then they 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 take you in and did you have surgery there at Terrencout? Oh. That was like a yeah, that was like a real um that was a real eye opener for me. It was hard. It was it was hard. But you know, um I mean bad stuff happens all the time. Uh we we know that. So but yeah, that's that's I think that's the most defining moment of my military career was uh that right there. Wow. And that was still at Terrancote, right? Yeah. And then, so, so from there, you went on to Kandahar, and then, and then to Germany, presumably. Yeah. Okay. And then, how long was it before you were back in the U.S.? So what point, and I would imagine that, you know, you've got some pretty vivid memories from, you know, everything from the first moments through, it sounds like maybe those first couple of days. Um, I imagine that at some point that whole process kind of becomes almost a blur, but at what point um, do you remember there being a point when you worried about keeping your leg?
from my understanding, they wanted to keep the lake connected uh, because it it wasn't completely detached off my body. I was considered a battlefield MVP below the knee, but um, it wasn't completely detached. And I want to say they were worried about infection or, or something. But anyways, they told me I would be losing my leg when I got to uh, Bill Turner Medical Center. And at that point, I didn't know what to think because you can't really think when you're on that cocktail of bed. Um, so I got to Brooks Island Medical Center, and uh, again, if you were going to get blown up in Afghanistan, 2010 was a pretty good year to do it because they were starting to push wind southward. Um, and basically, when I got in, I knew I was going to lose my leg. I had a, I, I mean, I underwent 26 surgeries, but then the first set of our first series of surgeries, um, they were evaluating, like, wow, you, you have a lot of tissue still left here, and it was it was kind of an exploratory surgery. Um, I, I signed waivers and stuff like that to see if we could keep my leg. Um, what I was told by, you know, the doctors and my main orthopedic surgeon was, you know, there's, there's a small chance of this working. Um, by all means, you know, you can sign away your leg if you want, but if this works, you know, you can rewrite some Lynn Salvin history books, or not history, but medical books. And the worst thing to do is to challenge Green Beret. He's like, well, crap, man, now I kind of have to do it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I started in the uh, Lynn Salvage, um, I, I guess, protocol or procedures or, uh, or whatnot. And um, the surgeries, I mean, I, I ended up getting a nickname in the hospital, Wolverine, because I just, my skin graft took the very first time. My bones were healing at record pace. It was, it was, it was crazy. Um, I had four inches of fib, uh, fibula that I had to grow bone in between to reconnect my upper tib to my lower, where the blast had basically exited my leg. Um, they were going to just leave my fib floating in my leg because apparently you don't really need your fibula. I, I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but apparently you don't really need it. But I had to grow, uh, I had to grow a lot of inches of bone um, to reconnect my my fibula. And and I grew. I, I mean, this was they were looking at 24 plus months for me to rehab um, at Bamsey. And some of the darkest days of my life, the most pain I've ever been in in my entire life, the most agony um, I've ever dealt with. I grew bone, my skin graft took, I have a skin graft on the bottom of my foot. Um, I had brand new skin start to grow over the skin graft on the bottom of my foot, which I guess is unheard of. And slowly but surely, I, I, I started healing up at record pace. I mean, they took my X fix off. Um, gosh, I don't know, a year plus before I was even supposed to have it off. Um, I was I was in the uh, uh, the walk to run program again, <laughs> 18 months before I should have been. And I would say from stepping on the IED September 12, 2010, to when I was discharged from. Brooks Army Medical Center, it was November, 
Wow. Wow, just 18 months after stepping in the IED. How did the the team that you went to, how did the team react? Um, you, you know, like you said, you understood why some people might have a problem with it, especially if they weren't there to see, you know, you kind of being tested and, and put through the ringer to make sure, you know, your legs are going to hold up. Um, how did the team, how did the team react when they, when, when you got sent out to them? Wow. So was there, you know, you kind of spoke of this, um, you know, I don't know if it's confidence or like, you know, determination. Um, but was there any point during that 18 months, especially early on when you just didn't see any way that you could make it back to 
you know, active duty, much less an operational unit? So you mentioned that the team that you got sent out to, there were a couple of guys that were pretty standoffish. Um, was there a process? Did did like over time? Did did people generally come around and say, "Look, he's he's not a weakness on this team. Um, you know, he's contributing exactly as we expect to." Did that happen during that first deployment? Sergeant Major who didn't really agree with me being out there. 
uh, he came out and he was just looking for an excuse. And he said, how's he doing? You guys need him here? And they were like, he's doing great. Yeah, we do need him here. Um, so, yeah, it took a couple months. Uh, and I, again, um, I completely understand it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have um, expected any different. Well, so I guess I have, you know, kind of one last question about this. And, and that's, um, is it, is it hard to talk about or has it, you know, has it gotten easier over the years to kind of talk about the process? Cause like you said, you talked about some pretty dark days. Um, those are, those are days that you can't experience with anybody else. You have to experience them alone, which sometimes I think people have a hard time or it takes them a while before they get to the point where they're kind of comfortable trying to describe that knowing full well that nobody that listens to that story is ever really going to truly understand, but that there's value in, in talking about it anyway. Have, is it, has that been kind of a process that you've experienced? experience and you can dominate it and you can change and you can make that the best thing that ever happened to you if you look at it and play your cards right and it's very easy to because i'm i'm no big name anybody i just i just had a dad that made sure that um i never felt that he wouldn't allow me to feel sorry for myself and and he gave me the option use this and and make this the best thing that ever happened to you or become a victim. And I like to talk about it with people because I, you know, I, I feel like I've done pretty good for myself and I feel that there are people out there that struggle and there's a lot of victimization in, in this country. And I, I, I do feel that the story could reach some people. Well, I really appreciate you taking some time and, and, and sharing uh, sharing that story with us. Hey, thank you so much for listening to The Spear. Remember to find and subscribe to The Spear on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss the second part of my conversation with Ryan Hendrickson in our next episode. Thanks again for listening.